Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. Well, today we have with us a friend, Paul Snively, and so glad to have you because I've, I've really been Thank missing you. you over no, the thanks. last couple of years. I, I used to see you at conferences and right. used to chime in on Twitter threads and, and uh, <laughs> provide so much wisdom. And, oh, uh, and, and I, obviously we haven't been to conferences and you dropped off Twitter. And so I've been missing you. Yeah. So yeah have I you appreciate on, that on our podcast. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, I have taken a leave of absence from social media to a, to a considerable extent. Probably a good thing. Probably a <laughs> it's, way to live. It's, it's certainly good for my mental health, you know. Um, so you guys are in, in Crested Butte, I guess. We are. Uh, yeah. And uh, a few years back now, I moved to the Asheville, North Carolina area. Oh, nice. Um, so, You're yeah. So I'm, as well. Yeah, that's right. The Blue Ridge Mountains and all, all that good stuff. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm I'm having said that now I'm, I'm being encouraged from multiple sources to sort of get back into the, to the conference game. And, and I was going to actually not uh, presenting necessarily, but I certainly intended to attend uh, Lambda Conf uh, 2019, I guess. Um, and uh, that would have been, uh, as it turns out, had it happened, an opportunity to get back together with uh, Amanda Locker, who oh, yeah. we were just talking about because of our yeah. work uh, on our presentations at Strange Loop all those years ago, 2012 and 2014. Yeah, which for anyone that hasn't seen those presentations, they are both amazing. So there's types, uh, types over test. What's that? Types versus tests. Types yeah, versus was the test. first one. Yeah. yeah. And then what was the second one called? The type, yeah, type systems, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, you know, we, we tried to be, we tried to be intellectually honest about, you know, because we're both known as pretty heavy, heavyweight type mavens. Um, and, and we tried to be intellectually honest about the fact that, you know, the type systems that most people are familiar with are not kind of the type systems we're talking about when we talk about why we like type systems, you know, um, as, as a Scala developer, um, I think, and, and with a Scala audience, um, it's probably clearer that that's the case, you know, that Scala's type system in particular is quite a bit more powerful than, uh, than many others. So, so maybe that argument is, is not one that needs to be made to your, to your um, audience. It's, it is interesting. You often see in the arguments of around type systems where all the arguments against them are really coming from bad type systems. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Which you need to understand I mean, this because my experience was I started with pre-ANSI C, which mm -hmm. was yep. not, I mean, even as limited typing that C has, it didn't right. have that. It was just basically <laughs> seriously yeah. a high-level assembly language. Right. And then when we started using C++ and it would find all these issues because of the type system, it was like, mm -hmm. oh, this yeah. is oh. And yeah. then, you know, Java with its onerous bad syntax and type system and oh my gosh but it took me a long time to understand that that was because java was badly designed and then when you see something that isn't intrusive like scala where it's like no it's helping that's mm -hmm. the thing i think for me yeah. it was the type system there to help you or the, help the compiler right when you're having to help the compiler and it's intrusive and it makes you yeah. type a bunch of things to to do it and it doesn't let you express intent mm -hmm. yeah. exactly you know is it a design tool 
for your application, you know, I think that's, you alluded to the feedback that I've heard most often, certainly, which is just, well, I'm only doing this, all this type ceremony to satisfy the compiler. Um, and, and that's a valid criticism. That's a valid concern for sure that, you know, I'm having to, I'm having to spell all this out multiple times. I mean, I, I think the, <laughs> that's right. the C- you have to do it on the left side and on the right side. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Foo colon uppercase foo equals new foo. It was like, oh my goodness, yeah, you know, what, what, how did, you know, in what way have I offended God that, that <laughs> we wound up here, you know? Um, and it's just bad uh, language design. It, well, I mean, it, it fits into a paradigm that was dominant at the time. And, and I, I think another thing, and I don't know how much of, of Java's design reflects this, but I do think it's important to remember that Java was originally intended as a small embeddable language for set-top boxes. Um, that was the target for, for the Oak project. Way well, here, that's how way, it way started. Right. <laughs> right. Then, then the internet came along and they it, said, oh, yeah, we got to yeah. be the language of the internet. And right. also it's important to understand that it was intended to be small talk. Right. Yes. So, so it, it has that schizophrenia, right? It has, it has the late binding of small talk, but it has the syntax of C plus plus, and and so it's, it's kind of this neither fish nor fowl thing, and and always kind of was. N- never mind the challenge inherent in, for example, remember the old days when the JVM was literally baked into Netscape, for example, right? To run to run, to run applets, you know? Yeah. And, and sort of the uncomfortable marriage that that was, you know, because if, if you wrote applets, and I did, by the way, <laughs> oh, that's, that's actually a funny little piece of personal history. Um, I worked for a consultancy in uh, Hollywood that was doing promotional sites for uh, some of the studios, one of which was Universal. And so I wound up doing a little graphical adventure game to go with a promotional site for a, a little Peter Jackson film, The Frighteners. That's oh cool. right! <laughs> yeah, I remember that. So on the website at the time, it would launch an applet that was yep. some fun little. Yeah, and yeah. you know that in Java yeah. 17, they're removing the applet API <laughs> at long last. At long last, free at last, free at last. Nobody's using it. Yeah, or nobody's using it anymore. Oh, anyway, we we can we can yeah we can go back and forth over that that history uh, and take up all of our time. But oh, yeah. um, so what do you think was the kind of forcing ideas behind those earlier type systems that, that shaped it? Well, I mean, I, so I didn't know about anybody else, but for me, the big intellectual leap, which thankfully came when I was about um, 16, 17, 18, certainly by the time I got to university, and I'll come back to that in a minute. But the big leap, I think, was going from the from the concept of types as describing how bits are laid out in memory, which is, you know, obviously the the C model, right? Uh, C and C plus plus model to a considerable extent. C plus um, plus goes beyond that, and I'll come back to that too. But once you start thinking of types as defining legal operations on values, um, defining legal operations on terms, then I think, I mean, first, so I mean, for me, that's the that's the opening of 2001, a space odyssey after the monolith has, has taught the primates how to use tools, right? I mean, it's... Yeah, it's just this huge, huge, huge mental leap to go from 
types as descriptive, right? I mean, here, you know, here's memory, here's a set of ones and zeros in memory. And, and you, you, you slap a type on that and congratulations, you've got a description of how those ones and zeros are laid out to, um, no, actually when you have this type, you've got a, you know, M by N matrix that you can multiply with some other M by N matrix and, you know, things, things like that. Um, and, and then, uh, to, to discover some of the languages that are really based on this idea. So the standard MLs and the OCamels and, and the Haskells and, and then ultimately Scala. But, you know, it can take, it can take a while to get there. And I certainly took a detour. I didn't get to types right away. So I'm, I'm from Indiana. Um, I was born and raised in Indiana. So I went to Indiana University. I went to Indiana University in the mid 1980s. So there's Douglas Hofstadter, you know, two years after winning the Pulitzer Prize for Gödel Escherbach. Uh, there's Dan Friedman, the author of The Little Lisper or The Little Schemer, uh, you know. And and I'm there. I am. And, and in fact, I started reading The Little Lisper, which is what it was still called at the time, uh, when I was still in high school. I actually found it in the Indiana University Library when I was there visiting while I was still in high school. So, so I got to IU and you can just imagine, you know, if, if you can imagine a very curious, maybe a little bright, certainly brash, arrogant uh, 18-year-old uh, running around with his copies of Gödel Escherbach and the Little Lisper and running over to Lindley Hall and going, you know, Dr. Hofstadter, Dr. Friedman, could you please explain, you know, <laughs> and they were just, they were ridiculously patient with me, which was um, a blessing. And then fast forward again to, um, to strange loop. Um, I think it was the 2014 one where uh, Dan Friedman, I mean, here I am presenting at the same conference as Dan Friedman. Um, and then I'm sitting in the Union Station bar after one of the days, and I'm just wiped. I'm, I am completely wiped out, maybe even after our presentation, after Amanda's of my presentation. And I'm sitting there all by myself, and then Amanda wanders over with Dr. Friedman and and sits us down. And, and the next thing I know, I'm getting a manuscript copy of The Little Prover, which I wound up reviewing. Uh, so So that was a yeah, great, great honor, and um, really, really enjoyed that. So anyway, so I, you know, you don't go to IU in the mid '80s and study with Dr. Friedman and Dr. Hofstadter and come away not knowing skiing. <laughs> so, so I went through the whole, and I was interested in artificial intelligence and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, so I went through this big Lisp phase, big Lisp phase. That went on for a decade and a half or more. Um, to, to such an extent that I also wound up reviewing Peter Norvig's um, Paradigms of Artificial Intelligence Programming uh, for Morgan Kaufman. Uh, what was that? 90, 91, something like that. So I was a big Lisp fan. So, so when it comes to functional programming, you know, I was there, right? I mean, certainly from the... You were there 40 years ago. <laughs> I was there. <laughs> I was into functional programming before it was cool. Yeah. Um, but you it was... Functional programming hipster. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I've got the beard to prove it. Um, and, and, but it was all dynamically typed. And, and um, I, I bought into the argument that that was liberating, right? I mean, again, compared to the type systems that we had with Pascal or C or, you know, what have you um, in those days. But then, um, gosh, I discovered OCaml in the mid 90s. And I, I came across some some academic stuff about 
proving properties of communication protocols, networking protocols, um, that kind of stuff with, with proof assistants that were based on type theory and all this kind of stuff. And I, I was just, it was one of those situations, I don't know if you guys have ever been in exactly this position, but the, the thought that literally ran through my head was, it's not acceptable for me not to understand this. You know, it's like, okay, and the technical term for that, by the way, is obsession. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so there I was <laughs> coming with this massive list background and all this kind of stuff and being faced with all this kind of, you know, not, not only are types something you can use in your programming to, um, you know, manage the layout of bits and memory, or even just manage legal operations on values, but there's actually a relationship to formal logic there. Um, and then you, you poke at that a little bit and that ball of yarn unwinds to the Curry-Howard isomorphism and proof assistance and, you know, uh, dependently typed programming languages. And, you know, it's a floor topping. No, it's a dessert wax. It's, you know, so you, so you look at Agda or Idris or um, Koch, the proof assistant, the French proof assistant. And, and it's like, yeah, these are programming languages. These are, these are purely functional programming languages with unbelievably powerful type systems. And then you start looking towards the future and it's like, well, okay, is this stuff ever going to hit the mainstream? You know, we, we, we have enough of a challenge talking about Scala and talking about Haskell, talking about purely functional programming with type systems that are considered very sophisticated and very complex uh, today. And then there's this whole other world, you know, that we, we yeah, haven't, haven't, haven't so quite gotten to yet. yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But Scala uh, seems to be bridging that those ideas to the mainstream in a, yeah. in a pretty big way. I think so. Even like Kotlin has embraced a lot of these, these things as well. Not, with, not, the, with the arrow library. Yeah. Right? With arrow. Yeah. 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 That's, that's really good work. Did that come out of refresh my memory? Is that 47 degrees? Yep. That's 47 yeah, degrees. That, that did. It. Yeah. Yeah, um, I worked with some of the 47 Degrees guys while they were working on on Arrow for Kotlin. Um, I, I think there's a lot of overlap between some libraries that they did for Scala and Arrow. In particular, I think their, um, their distributed procedure call or remote procedure call library, uh, Mu, um, came out of sort of the intersection of, of both of those projects. Really, really good and interesting work. And they certainly have pushed Kotlin uh, a lot farther than I thought Kotlin could go as far as its type system is concerned, to be honest, you know? Um, and, and I think, I think that's great. It's, it's funny if you look at, um, the expressive power of type systems, you know, which I guess is sort of what we're touching on here. Um, there has been a stunning amount of progress and, you know, it's funny. I think now one of my favorite examples of that is TypeScript. Um, and, and that's because I think because it, had the design goal of supporting JavaScript as is. Any valid JavaScript program program is a, is a valid TypeScript program. And it wants to be able to provide typings for existing JavaScript libraries. Uh, so it's not just for new code. Um, its type system had to just become ridiculously sophisticated <laughs> because of all the JavaScript idioms that don't fit neatly into the dominant type system paradigms, you know, you, you, you have to, so for example, it's a common JavaScript thing to say, uh, you, you will take a parameter, you know, we'll, we'll have a function that can take a parameter. It's going to be a string, but it's going to be one of, you know, 10 known strings, right? So you think, oh, an enumerated type. Okay. Well, 
Um, how would you express that in a way that's compatible with JavaScript in the wild? Um, and so the answer turns out to be the sort of the ideal one from type theory, which is that an enumerated type is the co-product of the singleton types of its uh, values. Yeah. You know? So, so if you say, well, each string is its own type, you know, the singleton type of each of those strings, and then take the co-product of that, boom, there's your enumerated type. And that's exactly how TypeScript does it. Um, and, you know, it, it kind of has to, because there will be contexts in which JavaScript will be slinging some subset of those strings around, you know, some sub, uh, actually in type theory terms, super type of, of the enumerated type. And you have to you have to narrow the enumerated type to to just the subset of those values that make up that particular subset of the values of the enumerated type. Blah 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 blah. If you want to remain safe, yeah. if you if you don't want it to accept, you know, if you don't want your function to accept any of the other elements that aren't valid in that context, and it's like, okay, that's that's actually a hard problem. And the TypeScript team solved that problem. Why? Because they had to, because they had to be backward compatible with JavaScript <laughs> and the gazillion libraries out there that work that way. It's interesting um, how we've seen a lot of the evolution in, in mainstream typed languages with TypeScript and Kotlin mm -hmm. um, is mainly what I'm thinking about. They were so beholden to what they were building on top of Right. In the case of Kotlin, mostly the JVM, in the case of TypeScript, JavaScript. Mm -hmm. And and Scala, interestingly, started with Java and, and JVM stuff as being, you know, one of the core principles. And I, I don't know if I would totally consider yeah. it a core principle anymore. I mean the interoperability is still there, but it's right. well, interoperability in Scala was I mean, when you Kotlin's interoperability is seamless with Java. I mean yeah. it's mm -hmm. so nice but and, i think you have to make some trade-offs oh you do in what and the they type did. system can and do. they did whereas i think scala i don't know if scala 3 it, it just it feels like yeah you can do it with work but that's not what we're about yeah yeah and i and i appreciate that yeah yeah, yeah i think that's true and fair um i i haven't talked specifically about the design of Scala with Martin for a very long time. But looking back, I think he had some, some pretty uh, trenchant and ultimately maybe even regretful um, things to say about the design of existential types in Scala, which are designed the way they are, if memory serves me correctly, for the sake of uh, compatibility with Java generics, yeah. which which he also designed, I, I, yeah. I think one of the one of the things that I think a lot of people in you know in your audience might not uh, might not know is that Martin was uh, directly involved in the design of Java generics uh, back back in the Java five days, and I it's think he wrote penance for uh, for that. <laughs> but yeah, he's uh, you know like, I got to um, make this right. Yeah, it, yeah, but then exactly. He still right. had to. He still wanted to be compatible with Java, so then he probably couldn't yeah. do everything he he maybe wanted to do with the types. Well, of and. And, and rightly so, I have to say. I don't think Scala would be even as successful as it is. And obviously, it's still a niche language, to, to be fair and honest. But I don't think it would even be where it is if he hadn't paid so much attention to, to that compatibility. And, and if you go back, as, and I sometimes do just for, you know, I don't know, nostalgia, I suppose. Um, but he did a presentation, a uh, Google Tech Talk back in, I want to say, 2006. 
if if you can believe that about the about the Scala experiment was was the title of that presentation. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, it's I, I do believe it's on on YouTube these days. Uh, and and he talks about that explicitly, of course, as you might imagine, in two thousand six, and and to a Google uh, you know tech talk audience. Um, but but sort of you know why why build on the JVM? Why um, you know and and what were some of the design decisions that he made that were motivated that way? And and this is coming after I don't know if, if you guys know this aspect of the history either, but he had designed a couple of experimental languages before. Um, before that, pizza uh, was one of them, and funnel uh, was the other, and and they had some really interesting concurrency features. But uh, you know, he learned what he wanted to learn from them. I think, which which was that some of the design choices there didn't work at scale, and and so I, Scala really, in my mind at least, again, I may be putting, <laughs> I'm at risk of putting words in Martin's mouth, um, but came out of the results of of pizza and funnel and, and really wanting to, first of all, drive mainstream adoption. And secondly, uh, support certain idioms and paradigms well, but not with the kind of, um, fine granularity that, uh, that pizza or funnel did. Yeah. It's interesting to see how, um, even though we'd like to leap forward into, you know, really super, pure languages, mm-hmm. we have to accommodate what a certain percentage of people understand now. Right. Yeah. And and the whole industry has been that kind of progress. Okay, everybody understands what generics are. Well, not everybody, but you know, enough people understand what generics are that we can do this now, and then we can do yeah. that. Well, you kind of wonder how many languages have to be designed without generics and then bolt them on very painfully later. I mean, oh, let, let's see. So C++, Java, Go, you know, it, it's if, if there's one thing I would offer to prospective language uh, designers today, it's it's that you need parametric polymorphism out, out the gate. It's, well, it is just so unbelievably excruciating to add later. Oh, yes. Um, and I don't know if you know the story, but when Gosling was de- designing Java, um, it was, um, oh, who was one of the guys who started Sun initially? He lives in Aspen over here. Um, Bill Joy. Bill Joy. Bill thank Joy. you. Yeah, because mm-hmm. there's there's an interview with him on Artima, and he talks about how he really tried to get Gosling to add generics from, from the, the beginning, beginning. Gosling yeah. said, nah, we're in a hurry. We can't do that. <laughs> right. And yeah. So, we, we, we don't, we uh, don't have time to do it right. So now we, we've yeah. been paying the price of that. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> Which, and to be, to be fair, uh, you know, um, if you're not starting from the perspective of, I want to say standard ML was the first language to really have parametric polymorphism baked in from day one. So un- unless you're willing to start from the ML perspective, which the Java team certainly was not, the C++ team was certainly not, the Go team was absolutely most definitely not, um, then it's a defensible claim that you know it's too complicated to do in the context of a language that isn't contemplating it from the outset. In other words, almost by definition, a language is not in the ML family. You know, it's not standard ML. It's not OCaml. It's not Haskell. It's not Scala. Um, you you almost wind up making 
much broader design uh, commitments, I think, if you start from the perspective of, well, you know, of course we need parametric polymorphism. I'll go ahead and argue that that is the case. You you do need parametric polymorphism. So your language is going to be in the ML family. Um, I I think that's in the ML family one way or the other. One way or the other. Yeah. By hook or by crook. You know, I mean, it, it, it almost does feel that way. It feels like C++ got dragged over, you know, so much so that it bifurcated that community, right? I mean, you... Well, at the time, I mean, I was on the committee when that was happening. And, okay. Yeah. And it was, it, the argument that Strustrup made was, yeah, we're going to break some code, but mm-hmm. the amount of code that's out there now is basically minuscule compared to... Yeah, the now's the time to do it. will be. Now's yeah. the time to do it. And yeah. And there are decisions in the in C++ templates that I find superior to some of the other parametric polymorphism approaches. Yeah, um, you know, I I was one of those people who wound up on on one of the sides of that bitter divide. You know, back back when it was uh, C with classes versus uh, Boost architecture astronauts. You know, um, so I was absolutely on the Boost architecture astronaut side. Um, and, and I agree, I, I think the, the unfortunate thing about C++ templates in my mind is something that, um, Tim Sweeney pointed out uh, a long time ago, speaking of people you should have on your podcast. Um, you know, he pointed out that it's just bizarre that you have this Turing complete type level programming system kind of grafted onto to C++, but it's so syntactically constrained and, and the only types you have at, at the template level are integers and booleans. Um, so you wind up having to build up anything at all interesting almost from uh, by induction from first principles. You know, you're, you're creating all these recursive template types and the, the curiously recurring template pattern and all oh. that kind of <laughs> never completely never, that always confused me yeah of course of course it is confusing um and and it works it, it's confusing but it works and and i think that's the that's the tragic description that that tim was pointing out is that yeah you can build this stuff you you have the computational power it is turing complete uh you know which so it's a it is a the template language of c++ is a turing complete programming language it just it's just so primitive and ugly syntactically and semantically. And, and but it's backwards it be compatible with C. <laughs> it's backwards compatible you with C. You can take my C code and run it on C++. Right. Well, and that gets us to another um, important uh, topic that I do want to touch on. I, so I was just listening to some of your, your previous conversations and, of course, your your wonderful conversation with, uh, with our good friend Dick Wall. Um, and you guys talked a little bit about, you know, can can we have safe and efficient? You know why why do we why do we have to choose? Yeah, and that, and we always uh, to make trade offs between yeah, and, and and I think um, let's talk about Rust for a minute. So you know Rust also came came out of the C plus plus tradition, if you will, right? Um, and here's here's Mozilla with this enormous C plus plus code base, and they're experiencing all the pain of manual memory management and all that kind of stuff. So so they're like, well, let's solve that problem. And the way that they go about solving that problem is to introduce a very particular kind of type system, an affine type system. What's um, the name again? Affine, A-F-F-I-N-E. 
Uh, so um, it's it's not quite a complete linear type system. It's an affine type system. Uh, and, and the idea is that now in your type system, you can say things like this resource is only used once and, and is guaranteed to be relinquished, you know, after, after, and, the, and the type system guarantees that. Now. Yeah. Um, so you've moved some, some idea of resources into the actual type system. Into the type system. Yeah. E- in an even more powerful way than uh, Haskell or, or the CATS ecosystems uh, types that support what, es- what, what essentially amounts to elevating, you know, try catch to the uh, to the type level in some sense. You can still violate those those guarantees. Whereas in Rust, if you violate the borrow checker, dude, your code won't compile. <laughs> Famously, right? I mean, people sort of beat their heads against the borrow checker for a while until it starts to make sense to them. Um, so in that sense, it's a lot like the conversation about monads. You know, um, what's a monad? Well. Um, I'm not going to bother trying to explain it to you. Just do this until it makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, and the borrow checker in rust is the same way, but, but the point is there you're starting to see the evolution of the type system to account for things that have historically been low level concerns have, have been to some extent efficiency concerns and, and it's compiling to native code and it's, um, you know, so so it is definitely performance focused, and so here's one step towards that safety and efficiency. You know, having our cake and eating it too. Um, the 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 cost in my mind with respect to that compared to a Scala or a Haskell or an OCaml is that we don't yet know how to combine some of the features of say Haskell's type system with this affine type. Uh, discipline or better yet linear uh, type discipline. I can't wait until we get there. I hope we do. Um, from do you the know perspective Unison has done anything around trying to combine these as well. If who has, sorry, uh, Unison, the Unison language. Uh, Unison. Oh yeah. Good, good question. Um, so our friend Runar and, and Paul Chiasano and, and Stu O'Connor and crew. Um, good question. I don't yet understand Unison well enough to answer it. I do know that they're yeah, taking. Renar, Paul are both on. <laughs> yeah, you. I'm. I'm. I'm going to leave you with a list of people to have on. Yeah. <laughs> um. So so they're doing an, an algebraic effect system, so that immediately puts them outside my can. I'm. You know. I'm aware of the research that's being done on uh, algebraic effect systems. Um. So another name to put on your list is Oleg Kisilyov, um, who who also has presented at Strange Loop. Uh, it's it, and going back to that very briefly, I made it clear to the organizers of Strange Loop when Amanda and Oleg and I were there that if they scheduled our presentation, uh, Amanda's and my presentation at the same time as Oleg's, I would be missing my own presentation. <laughs> um, so just so you know, um, so yeah, have Oleg on, but. Um, and why did I, why did Oleg come up? Oh yeah, algebraic effect systems. Um, so he's written about that on his site uh, to some extent. There's some interesting Microsoft research about that, and then there's Unison. Um, ah, gosh, does Unison yeah, implement anything like resource? Um, 
allocation, yeah. deallocation kind of. Yeah, I, I, I think the answer is yes. I mean, they certainly are concerned about resource safety, especially since they're very, very focused on distributed computing and, and almost like heading back towards the research on mobile code and things like that. I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. That's a good question to take to Runar and Paul and Stu. They certainly and, covered it in their book. That was uh, yeah. one of the primary examples. Yeah. Resource management. Yeah. I mean, it's it's something we all struggle with. Um, C++ is not alone in that regard. And it's, it's funny how I, I would say 50% of what I try to share when I talk about purely functional programming on the job in Scala is... Um, here's how you, here's how you do that in cats. Here's, here's resource, you know, um, here's, um, uh, here's, uh, gosh, uh, bracket. I don't know why I had so much trouble remembering that, uh, but was sort of, you know, so, so the interesting thing is not only does it formalize the notion of try catch as, as a type. But also, you know, hey, the whole point of typed functional programming is there's an algebra around it now, you know, so so you can actually reason algebraically about your your resource management, which ultimately is the point. Um, and, and I guess I want to I want to dwell on that for a little bit too. Why you know why why typed functional programming? Um, and and this gets us into the differentiation in my mind between the Cats ecosystem and the Zio ecosystem. Um, Excuse me. Um, so my good friend John DeGoes and his team have done a great job making purely functional programming Scala native with CEO. I mean, let's let's just acknowledge that up front. You know, plays better with type inference. Um, you know, is more concrete. I, I know uh, uh, you and Dick Wall uh, talked a fair amount about the value. Or actually, no, going back to Kit uh, Kit Langley. Yeah, with Kit. Yeah. Um, yeah talking about the value of concretization, you know, trying to avoid over abstraction. Um, that's, that's all good stuff. What I don't know yet, and I'm, I know there's an answer, uh, I just don't know what it is, um, is how the Zio ecosystem represents certain named abstractions and their algebraic laws. So, so for example, I don't know what this, what the Zio thing, I don't know what the name of the Zio thing is that is a thing you can use in four comprehensions. Now, you know, you prelude, the Zio prelude yeah, I know that's, I know that's underway and I know, so, I don't so know yet how prelude impacts, yeah. will, will eventually impact Zio. Like right. do you right. use type classes from prelude to indicate that this thing is a monad or this thing is a, especially monad. given that the Zio ecosystem is all about avoiding type classes. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. so, so, and like, I mean, when I heard that first from John, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm skeptical, John. Yeah. Uh, and, and then, uh, he did that great presentation. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I recommend it. We programming, did. programming without type classes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's the best exposition of the philosophy behind Zio I've seen. But he makes commitments there that I fundamentally disagree with. Um, you know, avoiding type classes completely, avoiding higher kinded types, and and I'm like, gosh, I don't think so. You know, um, I mean, free structures. That's great. That's absolutely a great launching off point. But one of your free structures had better be a free monad, <laughs> you know. Um, otherwise, how do you use a four comprehension? You know. So, and again, I know there are answers to all these questions in the ZO ecosystem. I just don't know what they are. 
Yeah, that's all. That's all. And I would love, I would love to hear that. So if you could invite John on and yeah, have him. well, uh, John, John's <laughs> been on our list for a long time. Too. A long time, yeah. So, like I said, I'll leave you with a lengthy list of of people to bring on. But so I, so I remain in the cat's ecosystem, and I like, I, I mean, really, really like. It seems fundamental to me. I, I, I know that's not really literally true, but it see, it feels fundamental to me to be able to say. Um, monad square you know open square bracket option close square bracket and and but that is admittedly weird that is admittedly weird why is it weird um because option itself takes a type argument but i can say monad open square bracket option close square bracket and not say a word about what kind of option i'm talking about and nevertheless that is a complete type monad bracket option is a complete type it has an instance, you know, there is a value of that type. Um, and so that's your, your higher kind of type, of course. And, and that, that's a big, you know, I can't disagree with, with the folks who point out that that's a big mental leap, you know, it is. And, and then, okay, how do you get at this monad square bracket option square bracket? Well, well, you, you take an implicit argument of, of that type, you know, and, and it's like, okay, what does that buy you? Well, you can invoke functions on that implicit argument as if that were the thing you were interested in programming with. And, oh, there's some tactic, syntactic enrichment. Syntactic enrichment, sorry, come again. You know, well, if you, if you have an implicit class that takes the base type that you're interested in and you can add these methods around it and blah, 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 you know. It's a little wild. When really what I think you're ultimately trying to do is, like you said earlier, is be able to have some expectations of the algebraic properties of something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And monad is being just a, a type alias for some combination of algebraic properties. Right. And, and that's ultimately what we want to be able to do is like, oh, this thing is commutative. This thing is associative. You want right. to be able to have those expectations on how you how right. you interact with it. And, and I think Zio does a great job of focusing on those basics. Uh, if, if I remember what John said in that presentation correctly, that uh, or maybe what I saw from Zio Prelude when I looked at it, um, is that they concentrate on the basics of associativity, commutativity, um, distributivity, uh, you know, your really, really basic um, algebraic properties. Yeah, that's concerned with lattices and semi-lattices. Right. And all the other like ways that you can combine algebraic properties. They're like, what are the most common algebraic properties right. that we'll use? And and so so those are the basics, and they turn out to be unbelievably general and powerful, and that's awesome. But the reality for me is that I actually rely on the applicative laws all the time. I actually rely on the monad laws all the time. I certainly rely on the monoid laws. I mean, it's, it, so, I mean, I guess that's, to me, it, I, I mentioned, okay, what's the Zio, what's the name for the Zio thing that you can use in a four comprehension? Because that's something that your average Scala developer is going to want immediately. Um, but especially as a, as a web programmer, um, gosh, it just seems like I'm always combining things that can be empty, you know? Uh, and so that's a monoid and, and the cat's ecosystem has just a staggering number of really cool, uh, and useful, not just cool, uh, pieces of functionality that are based on the idea. Well, in particular, the combination of applicatives and monoids. So like, um, fold map a. Uh, you know, apply some function that returns 
a type that has an applicative instance across all the members of a foldable. Um, and then if the result of that applicative has a monoid instance, you can combine them all in one go. So, so I think of in particular parfold map A, um, so do it in parallel. I call that spark in a box. <laughs> yeah, you know, spark in a box. Because that's that's what it does. It in in parallel applies a function that returns an applicative of some type that has a monoid instance and combines it at each step as each result comes in from the from the concurrent operation. Um, and just, and that completely spark, violates you can easily foot gun yourself because you don't have the same guarantees. Of, yeah, um, it's it's all it's all Java and and Hadoop based, and now we're back to Java, just not really having a good enough type system to tell you know to say what you want. I don't know. But but that's a good example of something parfold map A and John would say understandably again I'm not uh, trying to be critical uh, but he'll say use domain specific language don't use um, abstract language and I'm like yeah but here's an example of some abstract language that turns out to be just ridiculously useful you know um, it's like oh, all right I'm I'm anxious to hear I guess is the way I would put it what what the alternative is and you know what. It could take years to get there. You know, it's a it's a lot to say we're not going to stick with the Haskell type class tradition. We're gonna not gonna continue to use these names. They're too weird and abstract. We're not gonna continue to rely on these algebraic laws. Maybe there's another set of algebraic laws that we can build around these free structures and you know, do it from scratch, do it from from the ground up. So it's Scala native and it is purely functional programming in Scala for Scala. Um, and, you know, is not bound by this history. Uh, that's a noble goal and a worthwhile goal. I absolutely support that. I, I just don't know how to use it myself today, given that I want the relationships that I get from the classical type classes. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see how Scala 3 has some impact on some of this as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe that's because of the revamp type classes or some or better ADT support or whatever it may be of the union union types. Yeah. The, the big, that was such a shock to me when Scala first came out, actually, that, that Scala two didn't have a proper, some type, um, a, pr- a proper co-product uh, type. Yeah. That's such a great advance in Scala three Pro- in my mind, probably the biggest. Um, because heaven knows I'm constantly wanting to say this type or that type or some other type. Uh, and we, and, you know, as I think, uh, as I think Dick pointed out, we encode that all the time with a sealed trait hierarchy and, and, uh, inheriting case classes. And it's like, oh, oh. So, <laughs> too, too much, uh, too much syntactic overhead. So would you say that's a kind of polymorphism? Uh, well, yes, um, because you're, you're representing a sum type, which means you don't know the exact type statically that you're interested in. But, you know, so, so I mentioned earlier TypeScript and its support for enumerated types as a kind of a special case of, uh, of this, this idea, you know, that, that you can take the co-product of the singleton types of the members of the enumerated type and boom, there's your enumerated type. Uh, yeah, it it is relevant to, to polymorphism in the sense that, especially at I.O. boundaries, right? A lot of the time at I.O. boundaries, you don't know exactly what type you're going to get. You know it can be one of N different things. Um, and so you want to be able to say, you know, take these bits from the wire and look at some portion of them, look at some discriminator, right? So we, we know about discriminated unions. 
Um, and using that discriminator, you now know, okay, it's this type or it's that type or the other type. But how do you express this type, that type, or the other type? Well, that's a sum type or a sealed trait hierarchy in Scala 2 or a union type in Scala 3 or I forget what they're called in, in other languages, but um, type theorists take your pick, uh, some type or co-product, depending upon how much category theory they <laughs> they've swallowed. Yeah. Um, Bruce and I have been learning. I feel like we've been kind of taking the next step into our understanding of polymorphism mm -hmm. because I definitely, for a long time, my perspective of polymorphism was that it was just subtyping and subtyping mm -hmm. was mm -hmm. the only way to do yeah. polymorphism. And now we've been learning about type classes and ad hoc polymorphism and you mm -hmm. know, some of some of these other ways. Well, and even like beginning to think about, about generics or, you know, uh, type constructors as, mm -hmm. uh, as a form of polymorphism. I think it was your, right. your talk that really opened my eyes Pointed to that. in that direction. <laughs> yeah. Good. Yeah. And all of a sudden seeing like, Oh, polymorphism is this much bigger yeah. thing that can be accomplished with different strategies. Right. And and getting out of the mindset of just subtyping is the only way to do this. Yeah, and to me, that's kind of the tragedy of object orientation. Really, at the end of the day, and, and you know, we've all, this has been well rehearsed at this point, so I almost feel bad about sort of revisiting it. <laughs> but, but you know, even you know, long ago, over a decade ago now, Alan Kay was was saying things like. Uh, you know, hey, I invented object-oriented programming, and C was not what I had in mind. And 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 going generalizing that, I would say, um, I think he made the point explicitly at least once that people took the inspiration from small talk as he conceived of it, and focused almost entirely on the class-based inheritance thing, um, when in his mind it was really the late bound message passing thing that was key um, to, to his conception of small talk. Um, and, and I have a lot of, I have a lot of sympathy for that because, you know, heaven knows anybody who's been in the industry, as long as, you know, we guys have, has spent a lot of time with UML and class diagrams and, you know, charting out these static inheritance relationships that ultimately in practice in any system of any complexity, uh, turn out not to actually express most of what you want to know about the behavior of the system, uh, you know, and especially, I mean, I was a Mac programmer for so long and, you know, guess what object-oriented programming has to say about event handling? Bupkis. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, so these days, I mean, going back to TypeScript, I have a little side project that I've been working on for a while and I'm not a front end guy, which is good news, bad news. It meant that I sort of had a lot of freedom and, you know, the freedom born of ignorance, right. Um, to, to delve into the available. We like tools. to call it beginner's mind. Beginner, <laughs> yes, exactly. Beginner's mind. The one thing I, I went into it sort of knowing by the time I started this was, well, I'm going to use react, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's just kind of clearly one uh, you know, in, in the JavaScript framework space. Yeah, but I wanted to... The winner is clearly the best one. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you it's... Elm, huh? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I didn't. And, and I mean, that's a whole sidebar that we should take up another time. But, but, um, but I knew I wanted a functional reactive programming uh, framework of some kind. 
So, and I wanted to use React for, you know, mainstream, you know, learning resources and so on and so forth. So I, I found Cycle.js and I found a set of um, design elements or design system for React that Microsoft did, actually. They, they use in Office 365 and all that sort of thing. Um, and I, so I found a couple articles. There's a great blog post from the Cycle.js developer about using React with Cycle.js. And then, um, and that basically I found all the tooling to crank all of the purely functional thing in TypeScript to 11, you know, (laughs) and to, to the point where it's like vars, no classes, no, uh, you know, um, nulls, no, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it turns out this actually works. This actually works fine. The combination of cycle JS TypeScript react, uh, Microsoft's design system and um, some functional, I guess, e- ESLint and and yeah, some settings to to say disable this, disable this, disable this, disable oh. this, and it's um, and it works. It's it a works. pretty good happy path. It's like, a yes, right. And, and by the way, I want you thank you for reminding me. Um, if you haven't seen my um, my LambdaConf 2018 keynote, please, please do sometime. But in it, I explicitly say that one of the things I like about typed functional programming uh, is that it lets you just code the happy path. Yeah. (laughs) Because monads are fail fast, right? So, so you just accumulate, well, not accumulate, but you, you cascade your, your errors down the, the monad uh, composition. Or you insert a question here because it's something I've been trying to figure out. Please. which is so monads, error monads capture things that we would normally have done with exceptions. Right. And then at some later point, we do the equivalent of the catch clause. Mm-hmm. But what else is superior between, you know, monads versus um, checked ex- or not checked exceptions, just exceptions? Exceptions I mean, in general. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's it's a it's an answer that might not be satisfactory to to a lot of people. It's one of those things that if you're not already on this side of the river, may not sound all that compelling. Uh, but but it is once again the the algebraic reasoning that um, you can. So so not only is there the monad type class, but there's the monad error type class, uh, and and. Honestly, it, it almost seems to me that that's the one we should talk about first. Like, you know, um, monads are awesome, but not all monads are, are failure monads. And monad error is the type class that represents the ones that are. So, so there are operations on monad error that are not on monad, on just plain old monad. So, for example, since, since I'm a cats guy, um, the monad error type class in cats gives you the ability, for example, to say, um, please surface whatever the error is as a value in the monadic context without escaping the monadic context. So if you have a, if you have an, an F of A and you say the, the, the method on, on the uh, monad error instance is attempt. So if you say attempt on that, then instead of an F of A, you have an F of either whatever the error type is in A. But it's still in in the F context, whatever the whatever the monad error, um, whatever the type that has a monad error instance is. Um, so now you can you can map over that. You can do whatever you want with that either. 
um, and so on and so forth. Uh, conversely, there's, you know, going the other direction, there's rethrow. So if you have an either, you can uh, collapse it into the monad error context and just act as if you just had a, an A in this. You can go in and out of uh, left and right. You can go down to a, a value and mm -hmm. then come back out to a left and right structure. Right. Yep. So so you can either you can you can surface the failure in the monadic context, or you can unsurface the failure in the monadic context. Uh, and stay and stay in the monadic context, which means the monad laws are still satisfied. There are some monad error laws that that are uh, unique to to monad error that are also satisfied. So so you get all the benefits of. And here's where where John DeGoes and I strongly agree. Uh, I would say most strongly agree. We agree on a lot of things. Um, that the name of the game is programming with values. Everything is a value. Um, you're your, obviously, your values are values. Functions are first-class values. Um, errors are, are values. The idea or the representation of concurrency is a value. Um, and, and so when you have values, then you can use the type system to impose these algebraic laws. Um, and, and to me, that's the, the whole point. It's, and it's not even that I do. Like if, if you were to ask me right now, hey, Paul, what are the profunctor laws? Um, there is absolutely no way on earth I would be able to tell you. Um, the, the point isn't to memorize the laws. The point isn't to sort of sit there and dogmatically say, uh, yes, let me replace this expression with its value and, uh, you know, the substitution model of evaluation and uh, does this satisfy these laws and all that kind of stuff. I never do that to a first approximation, not literally never. But, you know, it's definitely it's not a daily, weekly or even monthly practice. The fact that I can, the fact that I could add a dependency on the cat's uh, discipline and laws libraries or modules and say, you know what, I'm I am in a weird situation where I've got to write my own monad instance or, you know, some more complex, you know, concurrent effect or whatever. I've got to write my own uh, instance of this type class. Boy, I'd better I'd better check those laws. You know, I'd, I'd better well, make sure yeah. that yeah, you know, run those tests. Um, the test framework is there. The laws are there. You know, that's cool. Um, I could do that. So, I haven't. I haven't had to. But uh, presumably, the cats built-in things have all used that to verify exactly. the validity. Yeah, yeah so exactly. Even so, as a user, you don't have to one. You can just trust that the laws have been validated. Right. Um, Two, you can have expectations around behavior. And this yeah. probably is ultimately around composability. You're combining values in, Absolutely. in a lot of different ways. Yeah. And you learn from the laws, oh, these things will compose in this way because because yeah. of these these laws. And now I can make expectation, I can have expectations on this thing that that's are that's reliable. right. So yeah. to kind of summarize, it sounds like when you do it say the monadic way, you can reason about it more easily. And then you have all the algebra that can be applied to right. the result. Right. Whereas and, if or, you or, do it with a try-catch, you're just hurling it over to some <laughs> other place where you can combine your... Anything is valid. Mm -hmm. take, take throw literally, guys. <laughs> you know, when, it, when I see a throw in a, in a code base, I think, you know, I get this visual of a catapult, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, um, it, it's, it's like the, uh, 
the orcs are are attacking uh, <laughs> Minas Tirith. You know, it's it's like they're lobbing stones at the walls. You know, <laughs> it's just it, and it's so funny too. And putting because, anything they want in the catapult, and putting anything they want in the catapult. <laughs> and it's There's funny because on a, yeah, exactly, Monty Python. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you never know it, what you're going to get with exceptions. You could get yeah. a combo. You could get that's right. That's ball. right. Yeah, the the technical term for this is dynamic non-local exit, which is every bit as horrifying as it sounds. Um, and 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 why does this come about? I mean, one of the other things that I guess is a little frustrating to me as a as a professional developer and computer scientist um, is that we don't really talk much about the historical evolution of, of these ideas. So where did exceptions come from? Well, they came from a history in which. Uh, you know, you used to indicate failure by returning some magic value, right? Uh, and, you know, negative one to, to indicate that, uh, you know, something failed or whatever. The problem with that, of course, is that negative one may be a perfectly good value for, for some function to return. You know, you, there may not be any spare values in the, in the return type that you can sort of use as a, as a magic value. But that's assuming that you can only return one value. Uh, that's assuming that you don't have some types that you don't have either uh, where you can communicate the fact that you either succeeded and got a value whose domain can be infinitely large um, or you got an error uh, whose domain can also be infinitely large. (laughs) Uh, You know, how many subtypes of throwable are there? You know, as many as you want Um, more than you want, I would say. Um, So, you know, Again, going back to this whole machine-oriented history, you know that we we had C and we had Pascal, and and um, you know from that came a lot of um, implicit mindset that there was no way to return more than one value. There was no way to indicate or a type that was either this or that, um, and and you know. <laughs> It's it's just sad because that didn't actually last that long. ML, not standard ML yet, but if memory serves me correctly, uh, the first ML hit the streets in 1975. Um, standard ML, I think maybe the late 70s, early 80s. OCaml um, was well established by the mid 80s at the very least. Well, and if you look at mutability itself, that was a way to save memory, which we had to do in right. the days. Yeah, yeah. Again, to be to be fair, um, yeah. When when CPU and memory was at a premium, gosh, uh, you know, a portable assembly language like C was just a huge advance, a huge advance. Think think about the the opportunities that came out of the distribution, the widespread distribution of Unix and C through the university system, you know, in the, in the 1960s and in 1970s. And this would run, you know, you could run these early uh, Unices with their C compilers and whatever, you know, applications, quote unquote, uh, were available. You could run them on your PDP-8, you know, maybe your PDP-11, right? I mean, pre-Vax. Yeah, like, <laughs> 8K, 8K of memory or something? <laughs> right. Yeah. And then, right. Right, can't anything in 8K of memory anymore. Well, you, yeah. you, you can't fit your stack in 8K of memory today. <laughs> my my study of organizational structures, the thing that has come out 
for me is because we we look at an organizational structure and we go, oh, that's terrible. I mean, the feudal system. Oh, that was awful. Right. Right. But it was better than the thing that came before it. Each <laughs> that's one. Right. And then you use it for a while and you go, oh, well, here are these other problems. And then you come right. up with a new structure. That's right. Yeah. The the tendency to project modern values on, on history is called Whig history, W-H-I-G, um, and is frowned upon in, in historical, professional historical circles, as it should be. But we do it in technology all the time, yeah. all the time. And I'm what guilty. What were of they it. thinking? Yeah. What were they, exactly? What were they thinking? But there's also, there are inflection points. So, you know, high resolution bitmap displays, mice, uh, you know, uh, fancy user interfaces. I mean, now we're talking about the list machines at MIT also in the 1970s, you know, and and attempted to be commercialized uh, famously uh, and famously unsuccessfully by Xerox in the 1980s, right? So they had small talk machines and list machines and all this kind of stuff. Symbolics had their list machines. Texas Instruments had their list machines. Um, so, um, so there was a lot of innovation that happened relatively early, but I, I do tend to, to agree with folks who say, well, those systems tended to be unsuccessful because they were expensive and resource hogs, you know? Um, and then small talk and Lisp added on top of that, the whole image-based, uh, system where you couldn't just compile things down to a nice little binary and ship it to somebody, you know, so that. That that was problematic. So so these were very developer oriented. You know, it's like nice. <laughs> so somebody's trying to create a really awesome developer experience and and largely successfully. Um, and this brings me back to uh, the fact that I know one person you should invite on, uh, Tim Sweeney, uh, CEO of Epic Games. Um, I mean, the Unreal Engine, to me is the modern developer focused um, system um, because you can program to the Unreal Engine in C++ if you want to go hardcore. But by the way, it does incremental compilation and linking. Uh, and you can do this while you're editing your title uh, in the in Unreal Ed, uh, the Unreal Editor, um, while it's running. And, and you can make a change to your C++ source code and say save. And about four seconds later, that, that change will be effective in the code that you're running while you're running it. Um, but you don't even have to do that. He's got a visual programming system called Blueprints um, that is a basically a data flow graph uh, system that um, entire titles are written with for, for game developers who don't know C++. Um, and so there's a very successful example of a um, very powerful visual programming language that's used for high performance. Uh, I mean, people develop real-time games with it, you know, um, and, and it's, uh, it's for real. And, uh, and Tim has lots of interesting thoughts about programming language design and the future of technology generally and, and um, the metaverse and, and so on and so forth. Well, I think so, you mentioned him in both of the presentations that I watched. I did. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of Tim's. Uh, Tim, Tim's, Tim's an acquaintance down here in North Carolina. We, he was kind enough to invite me to dinner uh, one time some months after I moved uh, into the state. Uh, really nice guy, brilliant guy, um, and just has, has had a lot of really sharp, things to say most of the stuff you saw in those presentations he said publicly on lambda the ultimate um and um 
you know, just a, just a very careful, thoughtful. I mean, th- think about the position he's in, where he's he's got hundreds of licensees, if not thousands of licensees, of the Unreal Engine developing titles. They've got teams of programmers ranging in size from you know five to fifty or more. Um, he's sub-licensed the Unreal Engine to Sony and Microsoft. So, you know, it almost is like job one for him is to reduce support costs for developers using the Unreal Engine. You know, um, how do you do that? Well, you, you make everything is, you, you make the right thing the easy thing. You just have to very aggressively make the right thing the easy thing. Um, and I think that's, part of his genius is, is that, you know, he's done that to such a great extent with the Unreal Engine. Um, he's designed a dependently typed programming language with a couple of colleagues from Intel. Uh, that hasn't been publicly released, but, uh, you know, it's indicative of the sorts of things that, um, that he thinks about. And, and it's, it's fascinating to me that somebody whose focus has to be, this has to be dirt simple for developers. This has to be dirt simple for, for artists, you know, uh, level designers have to be able to to make progress independently. They can't be blocked on waiting for their C plus plus developer to do X. You know, they have to be able to make progress on their own. And so, what's the answer to that? Um, you know, possibly some dependently typed programming language. <laughs> um, there's a point at which the question becomes: How much generality does it take? How much how much abstraction and generality does it take? before it magically crosses some complexity and difficulty line and comes back around almost full circle to, well, of course it works this way. How else would it work? Yeah. One of my burning questions, I think kind of related to this that Bruce and I have talked about a lot, but I I want to hear your perspective on is Mm -hmm. I think that we are in such a bad place with declarative languages Mm. and they they're just always like oh this is simple but then you know you get down the path with it and it turns out it's no longer simple and it mm-hmm. just is a total disaster and the tooling <laughs> right. that was promised around the declarative language was never built and mm-hmm. so on and so forth like right what does the future look like with declarative uh languages and uh, it's a like super where- super great question so i i was thinking about this based on your your um with unreal and having yeah. the like, flow designer tool right. to me that, that, you know, the way that we would typically think about that today is, Oh, so that must be writing some declarative language mm-hmm. that then gets parsed and, and, mm-hmm. you know, run yep. underneath the and, cover. And, but is and there it is. <laughs> yeah. And it is. Um, so, so what Tim did um, many, many years ago, back in the nineties, when he was doing the first unreal engine um, was he came up with a, really good, powerful, um, extensible uh, reflection system for C++ because he needed to implement a scripting language for the engine that was Unreal Script uh, back in those days and through Unreal Engine 3. Um, And Unreal Script needed to be able to invoke methods on C++ objects and C++ objects needed to be able to run game scripts and yeah, 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 yeah. So so he needed this this reflection system for C++, which he wrote as as part of the Unreal Engine. So fast forward to, I think, Unreal Engine 3, if memory serves me correctly, um, was where Blueprints, or used to be called Kismet, um, first showed up. 
And it absolutely relies on that reflection system to interact with C++ objects uh, in the engine. And so, you know, what does, what does the flow system actually do? I don't know ex- for sure the answer to that question. In Unreal Engine 4, I can tell you two things. One is that it's possible to compile your blueprint, uh, blueprint um, to C++. So there is a possible, there's, a, there's an ahead of time compilation process that you can take advantage of uh, for performance reasons. So that does tend to support the idea that, that the blueprint is basically just, quote unquote, just uh, a graphical abstraction on top of C++. Um, but that's, that can't be completely true because Blueprints also participates in this live coding thing that you can do in Unreal Ed. So you can, you can develop a graph, you can make some material changes, art changes, code changes elsewhere, et cetera, and you can ru- actually run, you can say run the game, uh, and then you can actually follow the changes of the data as they flow through the Blueprint visually. Those get rendered. Um, I'll, I'll send you guys a link to the tech demo that um, one of their lead uh, artists, lead designers uh, did way back when, whenever it was that Unreal Engine 4 first came out. But I also think that I know what the theoretical underpinnings of that, of the Blueprint system are, because um, it was Tim who pointed me to a really interesting paper on the uh, Lambda calculus with Letrec. (laughs) And, And it's like, oh, wow, that's that's amazing. I had no idea. And, and, uh, you know, it's like, so it's a window into Tim's brain and, uh, maybe points in some directions to some answers about how this works. But let me back up to your more general question about declarative programming. Um, the big challenge that declarative programming has historically had is effects, right? You know, it's, it's, how, how do you do IO and prologue, you know? Um, and and so at some point, I think there's an intersection of purely functional programming and um, whether it's logic programming or concurrent constraint programming, um, I, I think there is a future direction that we can look at and, and say, yeah, some, something is going to subsume these. Something is going to make it possible to say, you know, to achieve that prologue dream, right, of, of you, you say what you want instead of how you want it to be done. Uh, and that includes interacting with the outside world uh, monadically or, you know, algebraic effects or whatever, whatever it is. We, we don't know yet, but those things will get married uh, at some point and there will be an answer. I'm, I'm confident of that. I, I, I don't think it's something that we can look for in the next five years, um, but I do think that that direction is, is clear. Yeah, that seems so. Awesome. Anything else, Bruce? No. Um, if I hadn't just finished reading the Red Book, um, which is a great I, book, oh, you know, it is, and I understood maybe a third, um, mm-hmm. but I got through to the end, um, <laughs> which is I better than most people do. <laughs> have been able to keep up with this conversation. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no. yeah, and uh, uh, you know, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. That's, that's... I feel like I'm just beginning to grasp grasp some of the ideas from your presentation. Your first uh, uh, strange loop 
presentation types versus tests. Like, yeah. yeah. So I'm just now getting there, you know, how many years later. So <laughs> well, your wisdom and leading us um, on a, on a journey you. that many years from now, I will understand some of this podcast. <laughs> well, and, and, and let me maybe close with that, that observation that I structure these presentations in a, in a very specific way. And I don't even know if I've shared this with Amanda. I think I have, but um, it's important to me to talk about things that were true before I was born and will continue to be true long after I'm gone. So uh, talking about the Lambda calculus, talking about type theory, um, talking about category theory. Uh, at, at the end of the day, what I'm urging the industry to do is, is to go back to the foundations. You know, the Turing machine is only one model of computation, guys. Um, there's this other one called the Lambda calculus and, and when you add types to that, you get the various kinds of type lambda calculi. So, you know, by the way, for the critics, um, if you have a problem with doing typed functional programming, your argument's not with me, it's with Bertrand Russell. Um, so, uh, you know, take it up with him. But but uh, each, each presentation I've done, I, I've had that goal. I've had the goal of of repeating something, not saying anything original at all, um, repeating something that was true before I got there and will be true after I'm gone. And the other thing I try to do is um, in each successive presentation, I try to elaborate on some point that was made in a previous one. And you can see that very clearly um, in types versus tests and type systems, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, in types versus tests, Amanda and I tried to lay down some, some ideas as to how you might choose when to try to use the type system that you have and, and when you should rely on tests. And then, you know, one of the things that immediately comes out of that is, well, is your type system any good? Uh, and that leads directly to type systems, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, so there's a, there's a through line that I, that I try to maintain. Uh, and um, I don't know was how your, successful was I your am. 2019 presentation, another, yet another Oh, uh, the Lambda Conf, 2018 Lambda Conf keynote. Um, that was on, on one hand, yes, there's material in there that if you were to ask, okay, how does that relate to, uh, formal logic undressed at Scholar World 2015? You know, I, I, I could come up with an answer to that question, but the, the Lambda Conf keynote, I was a little more self-conscious about the fact that it was a keynote and also, um, maybe even a little, Maybe not defensive, but um, it was you know typed FP on the job. Why bother? Um, so uh, I, I was more aware of the need to address industrial um, considerations, you know, than theoretical ones. Almost everything else that I've talked about has been has been very theoretical. Um, I, but I like to live at the intersection of theory and practice. Which yeah. is why, which is why I work in Scala and purely, you know, purely functional programming in Scala. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a definition of computer science, isn't it? Right. Living at the intersection of theory and practice. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, and 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 um, and there are more intersections to 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 drive towards. So, so I said I was going to leave you with that last observation, but let me make maybe make one more, and then I'll I'll quit bending your guys and your audience's ear. Um, we we have to think about uh, we have to think about green computing, uh, and this is another subject that that you should raise with Amanda. Um, so, turn when you when you look at the intersection of physics and computing, it gets really 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 interesting, and and believe it or not, relates to purely functional programming. 
Um, so back in the 60s, uh, a researcher determined the, I think it was the lower bound, if I remember correctly, of the heat dissipation that must accrue from flipping a bit in memory. Uh, like there's, there's, a, there's a lower bound on how much heat, how much waste heat must be emitted by flipping a bit in memory. And this is a direct consequence of quantum mechanics because of the five or six or seven uh, different quantum mechanical theories, they agree on one thing, which is that uh, information is never lost in the universe. It's called the unitarity principle. Um, when the when Schrodinger's wave collapses, something happens. Something is guaranteed to happen. Probability one. Uh, and so it's like, okay, great. So if you flip a bit in memory, by definition, you know, it's like that sounds like information must be lost, right? Whatever the old value of that bit was is now lost. Uh, no, it's not. It's it's propagated out to the universe as waste heat. Uh, and so you can compute the lower bound on that. If you could make computing reversible, if you could make it so that that bit flip didn't actually lose the old value, but somehow that old value got propagated, if you could make the hardware immutable, if you could make the hardware reversible, we talk about reversible computing in, in certain research circles. If you had reversible computing hardware, then you could eliminate the heat loss because the information wouldn't be lost to the physical environment. The information would still be in some other bit somewhere else in the system. Now, of course, you can't extend that infinitely, I, as far as I know. <laughs> but, um, but think about that for a while. Think about the idea that um, as your laptop gets hot on your, on your lap when you're, you know, reading too many emails or watching too many videos or playing too many games or, or what have you, that um, A, back in the 60s, somebody figured out what the lower bound on that heat loss is when you flip a bit, uh, and B, uh, taking a purely functional programming approach to hardware may actually help the environment. Right. At well, some point. We need something beyond the transistor hmm. to save the world. <laughs> or, or, or at least improve it, our little corner of it, to some degree. Yeah, right. Well, this has been super fun, Paul. I really appreciate your time and your it's wisdom. Pleasure's mine. Sharing it with us. So. Yeah, I think yeah I thank you. I need to arrest my brain now. <laughs> <laughs>